Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven Story Mountain. Volume 15, Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 2. It was a hot day, a rainy day in the middle of August when I came out of the subway into the heat of Harlem. There were not many people on the streets that afternoon. I walked along the street until I came to the middle of the block and saw one or two stores marked Friendship House and Blessed Martin de Poor's Center, or some such title in big blue letters. There did not seem to be anyone around. The biggest of the stores was the library, and then I found a half-dozen young Negroes, boys and girls, high school students, sitting at a table. Some of them wore glasses, and it seemed they were having some kind of an organized intellectual discussion, because when I came in, they got a little embarrassed about it. I asked them if the Baroness was there, and they said no. She had gone downtown because it was her birthday, and I asked who I should see. So they told me Mary Gerdo, who was around somewhere. If I waited, she would probably show up in a few minutes. So I stood there and took down off the shelf Father Bruno's Life of St. John of the Cross and looked at the pictures. The young Negroes tried to pick up their discussion where they had left off. They did not succeed. The stranger made them nervous. One of the girls opened her mouth and pronounced three or four abstract words and then broke off into a giggle. Then another one opened her mouth and said, Yes, but you don't think. And this solemn question also collapsed in embarrassed tittering. One of the young men got off a whole paragraph or so full of big words and everybody roared with laughter. So I turned around and started to laugh too and immediately the whole thing became a game. They began saying big words just because it was funny. They uttered the most profoundly dull and ponderous statements and laughed at them and at the fact that such strange things had come out of their mouths. But soon they calmed down and then Mary Gerdo came along and showed me the different departments of Friendship House and explained what they were. The embarrassment of those young Negroes was something that gave me a picture of Harlem. The details of the picture were to be filled in later, but the essentials were already there. Here in this huge, dark, steaming slum, hundreds of thousands of Negroes are herded together like cattle, most of them with nothing to eat and nothing to do. All the senses and imagination and sensibilities and emotions and sorrows and desires and hopes and ideas of a race with vivid feelings and deep emotional reactions are forced in upon themselves, bound inward by an iron ring of frustration. That is, the prejudice that hems them in with its four insurmountable walls. In this huge cauldron, inestimable natural gifts, wisdom, love, music, science, poetry, are stamped down and left to boil with the dregs of an elementally corrupted nature, and thousands upon thousands of souls are destroyed by vice and misery and degradation, obliterated, wiped out, washed from the register of the living, dehumanized. What has not been devoured in your dark furnace, Harlem, by marijuana, gin, insanity, hysteria, and syphilis. Those who manage somehow to swim to the top of the seething cauldron and remain on its surface through some special spiritual quality or other, or because they have been able to get away from Harlem or go to some college or school, these are not at all annihilated, but they are left with the dubious privilege of living out the only thing Harlem possesses in the way of an ideal. They are left with the sorry task of contemplating and imitating what passes for culture in the world of white people. 
Now the terrifying paradox of the whole thing is this. Harlem itself, and every individual Negro in it, is a living condemnation of our so-called culture. Harlem is there by way of a divine indictment against New York City and the people who live downtown and make their money downtown. The brothels of Harlem and all its prostitution and its dope rings and all the rest are the mirror of the polite divorces and the manifold cultured adulteries of Park Avenue. They are God's commentary on the whole of our society. Harlem is, in a sense, what God thinks of Hollywood, and Hollywood is all Harlem has in its despair to grasp at by way of a surrogate from heaven. And the most terrible thing of all is that there is not a Negro in the whole place who does not realize, somewhere in the depths of his nature, that the culture of the white man is not worth the dirt in Harlem's gutters. They sense that the whole thing is rotten, that it is fake, spurious, empty, a shadow of nothingness. And yet, they are condemned to reach out for it and to seem to desire it and pretend they like it as if the whole thing were some kind of bitter cosmic conspiracy, as if they were thus being forced to work out in their own lives a clear representation of the misery which has corrupted the ontological roots of the white man's own existence. The little children of Harlem are growing up crowded together like sardines in the rooms of tenements full of vice, where evil takes place hourly and inescapably before their eyes, so that there is not an excess of passion, not a perversion of natural appetite with which they are not familiar before the age of six or seven, and this by way of an accusation of the polite and expensive and furtive sensualities and lusts of the rich, whose sins have bred this abominable slum. The effect resembles and even magnifies the cause, and Harlem is the portrait of those through whose fault such things come into existence. What was heard in secret in the bedrooms and apartments of the rich and cultured and educated and the white is preached from the housetops in Harlem, and there declared for what it is, in all its horror, somewhat as it is seen in the eyes of God, naked and frightful. No. There is not a Negro in the whole place who can fail to know, in the marrow of his own bones, that the white man's culture is not worth the jetsam in the Harlem River. That night I came back to Harlem, since Mary Jardo told me to, and had dinner with them all, and congratulated the Baroness on her birthday. And we saw a play that was put on by the little Negro children in the recreation room of the group called the Cubs. It was an experience that nearly tore me to pieces. All the parents of the children were there, sitting on benches, literally choked with emotion by the fact that their children should be acting in a play. But that was not the thing. For as I say, they knew that the play was nothing, and that all the plays of the white people are more or less nothing. They were not taken in by that. Underneath it was something deep and wonderful and positive and true and overwhelming, their gratitude for even so small a sign of love as this, that someone should at least make some kind of gesture that said, this sort of thing cannot make anybody happy, but it is a way of saying, I wish you were happy. Over against the profound and positive and elemental reality of this human love, not unmixed with Christ's charity and almost obtrusively holy, was the idiotic character of the play itself. Some one of those geniuses who write 
one-act plays for amateur theatricals had thought up the idea of having King Arthur and his knights appear in modern dress, running around in a country club. Let me tell you, this piece of wit became so devastating that it nearly gave me gray hairs watching its presentation by little Negro children in the midst of that slum. The nameless author, speaking in the name of 20th century middle-class culture, said, Here is something very jolly. God, replying through the mouths and eyes and actions of these little Negro children and through their complete incomprehension of what the jokes and the scene and the situations could possibly be about, said, This is what I think of your wit. It is an abomination in my sight. I do not know you. I do not know your society. You are as dead to me as hell itself. These little Negro children I know and love, but you I know not. You are anathema. Two or three nights later, there was another play put on in the parish hall by an older group. It was the same kind of play, all about rich people having a good time, presented by poor, hapless Negro youths and girls who had no means of knowing anything about a good time that was so inane and idiotic or so expensive. The very zest and gaiety and enthusiasm with which they tried to make something out of this miserable piece of trash only condemned its author and his inspiration all the more forcibly. And you are left with the sense that these Negroes, even in Harlem, would have been able to give all the rich men in Sutton Place lessons in how to be happy without half trying. And that was why their imitation of the ruling class was all the more damning an indictment. If the Baroness had tried to face the tremendous paradox of Harlem with no other weapons than these, I think Friendship House would have closed down in three days. But the secret of her success and of her survival in the teeth of this gigantic problem was that she depended not on these frail human methods, not on theatricals or speeches or meetings or conferences, but on God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. According to the plan of her vocation, the Baroness herself had come to Harlem and had started to live there for God, and God had brought her quickly into contact with the others who were serving in his secret police in this enemy city. The saints he had sent to sanctify and purify, not Harlem, but New York. On Judgment Day, the citizens of that fat metropolis, with its mighty buildings and its veins bursting with dollars and its brains overreaching themselves with new optimistic philosophies of culture and progress, will be surprised, astounded when they find out who it was that was keeping the brimstone and thunderbolts of God's anger from wiping them long since from the face of the earth. Living in the same building as most of the Friendship House workers was an aging Negro woman, thin, quiet, worn out, dying of cancer. I only saw her once or twice, but I heard a lot about her, for everyone said that she had visions of Our Lady. About that I know nothing, except that if Our Lady was to act according to her usual custom, Harlem would be one of the first and only places I would expect her to appear. Harlem or some sharecropper's cabin in Alabama or some miner's shack in Pennsylvania. The only time I spoke to her and got a good look at her, I realized one thing. She possessed the secret of Harlem. She knew the way out of the labyrinth. For her, the paradox had ceased to exist. She was no longer in the cauldron, except by pure accident of physical presence, which accounts for nothing since the cauldron is almost entirely of the moral order. When I saw her and spoke to her, 
I saw in this tired, serene, and holy face the patience and joy of the martyrs and the clear, unquenchable light of sanctity. She and some of the other Catholic women were sitting on chairs by the doorsteps of the building in the relatively cool street in the early evening, and the group they made there in the midst of the turmoil of the lost crowd astounded the passer-by with the sense of peace, of conquest, that deep, deep, unfathomable, shining peace that's in the eyes of Negro women who are really full of belief. Seeing the boys and the girls in the library, I had got some insight into the problem of Harlem. Here, just across the street, I saw the solution, the only solution, faith, sanctity. It was not far to seek. If the baroness, biding her time, letting the children put on plays, and giving them some place where they could at least be off the street and out of the way of the trucks, could gather around her souls like these holy women and conform in her organization others that were in the same way saints, whether white or colored, she would not only have won her way, but she might eventually, by the grace of God, transfigure the face of Harlem. She had before her many measures of meal, but there was at hand already more than a little leaven. We know the way Christ works. No matter how impossible the thing may look from a human angle, we may wake up one morning and find that the whole is leavened. It may be done by the saints. For my part, I knew that it was good for me to be there, and so for two or three weeks I came down every night and ate dinner with the little community of them in the apartment and recited Compline afterwards in English, all together, lined up in the narrow room in two choirs. It was the only time they ever did anything that made them look like religious, and there was not much that was really formally choral about it. It was strictly a family affair. After that, for two or three hours, I devoted myself to the task of what was euphemistically called looking after the cubs. I stayed in the store that was their playroom and played the piano as much for my own amusement as for anything else, and tried by some sort of moral influence to preserve peace and prevent a really serious riot. If a true fight had ever started, I don't know what would have happened, but most of the time everything was peace. They played ping-pong and Monopoly, and for one little kid I drew a picture of the Blessed Virgin. Who's that? he said. It's our Blessed Mother. Immediately his expression changed, somewhat clouded over with a wild and strong devotion that was so primitive that it astonished me. He began crooning over and over again, Blessed Mother! Blessed Mother! And he seized the picture and ran out into the street. When August ended and Labor Day came, the Baroness had to leave and go to Canada, and I left to make the second Trappist retreat, which I had been promising myself ever since I returned from Gethsemane in the spring. But I did not have the time or the money to go to Canada. Instead, I had written to the monastery of Our Lady of the Lake outside Providence, Rhode Island, and had received an answer to come the day after Labor Day. Driving through Harlem with Seymour the Saturday before Labor Day, I felt for Friendship House a little of the nostalgia I had felt for Gethsemane. Here I was once again thrown back into the world, alone in the turmoil and futility of it, and robbed of my close and immediate and visible association with any group of those who had banded themselves together to form a small secret colony of the kingdom of heaven in this earth of exile. 
No, it was all too evident. I needed this support, this nearness of those who really loved Christ so much that they seemed to see him. I needed to be with people whose every action told me something of the country that was my home. Just as expatriates in every alien land keep together, if only to remind themselves by their very faces and clothes and gait and accents and expressions of the land they came from. I had planned to spend the weekend before going to the monastery in somewhat the same way that everybody else in the country spends Labor Day weekend, trying to get some rest and recreation, which is certainly a very legitimate thing for them to do, at least in itself. But God, in order to remind me of my exile, willed that this plan of mine, which was primarily ordered to please no one but myself, should not be completely successful. I had gone about it the way that I had done things in the old days. I had decided just where I wanted to go and just what I wanted to do. For my own pleasure and recreation, I would go, I thought, to Greenport at the end of Long Island. There I would find some quiet place and spend the days reading and writing and praying and meditating and swimming. After that, I would cross the Sound on the New London Ferry and go from there to Providence to Our Lady of the Valley. And Lax thought that if he could get away from the New Yorker office in time that Saturday afternoon, he would go to Greenport too. But he did not seem very definite about it. I called up Seymour, and Seymour said, I will drive you to Greenport. Having exacted some assurance that he meant what he said, I went out to Long Beach. Seymour was at the station with a lot of his friends and associates, people in Long Beach with whom he had once started a kind of enterprise for turning the whole town into a Greek city-state, the Athens of Pericles. We all started out in the car. Having gone three blocks, we stopped and everybody got out and he said, We're going to have lunch in this restaurant. We took a few spoonfuls of bad food and back into the car. As I expected, Seymour turned the car around and started off in the direction, not a Greenport, but his own home. I forgot my camera, he explained. Seymour never had a camera. So we spent the afternoon in Seymour's sailboat in the bay, and we landed on a sandbar. And Seymour taught me some tricks in jiu-jitsu. He'd been learning jiu-jitsu in a gymnasium on Broadway, considering that he would be able to use it in the war if he got drafted. A little something to surprise the Japanese. The next day, we started out for Connecticut. That was when we passed through Harlem. Seymour was going to find his wife in Greenwich Village and drive her to New Haven, where she was in a play of a summer theater. He did not find his wife in Greenwich Village, but somewhere in the 70s, where it was decided after a long secret argument that she was not going to Connecticut that afternoon. Meanwhile, I tried to sneak away and take a train from Grand Central to somewhere where I could find the equivalent of the nice quiet room in Greenport. At that precise moment, although I did not know anything about it, Lax, having gone to Greenport, was searching for me in all the hotels and boarding rooms and in the Catholic Church. Finally, very late, Seymour and I sat in a traffic jam on the Boston Post Road and argued about the war. He drove me all the way out to Old Lyme, and it got darker and darker, and everything I saw made me miserable. I could nowhere identify anything to suit my Labor Day weekend dream. Just before midnight, I threw down my suitcase in a dirty little hotel back in New Haven and finished saying the office of that day. Seymour had vanished silent and nervous into the darkness with his car, 
alleging that Helen was even now arriving in New Haven on the train. As far as I knew, the plan was that she would go to the summer theater and pick up some sewing or knitting or something, and then they would both drive back at once to New York. You see, said Divine Providence, you see how things are in the world where you are living? You see how it is with the plans and projects of men? On the bright Tuesday morning when I rang the bell at the monastery gate at Our Lady of the Valley, the sky was full of blue, and walking into that deep silence was like walking into heaven. Kneeling in the tribune, with the sun pouring through the windows onto a great, curiously bloodless crucifix, and with the chanting of the monks taking my heart home to God and rocking it in the peace of those majestic thoughts and cadences, I worked my way, or was led, rather, into a retreat that was serious and practical and successful, more than I realized. There were none of the great overwhelming consolations and lights that had practically swamped me at Gethsemane, and yet, when I came out again at the end of the week, I was conscious of having acquired nourishment and strength, of having developed secretly in firmness and certitude and depth. For I had come out of Harlem with what might well have been the problem of another occasion. Was it that? In these eight days, ending with the feast of the Nativity of Our Lady, the matter had made itself more or less clear. If I stayed in the world, I thought, my vocation would be first of all to write, second to teach. Work like that at Friendship House would only come after the other two. Until I got more definite light, I would stay where I was at St. Bonaventure's. Had I been afraid or perhaps subconsciously hoping that the question of becoming a Trappist would once again become a burning issue? It didn't. That whole business remained in its neutral, indefinite state, relegated to the area which my mind could not quite perceive, because it was in darkness and clouded with almost infinite uncertainties. One thing I knew, here at the valley, I was filled with the same unutterable respect for the Cistercian life, but there was no special desire to enter that particular monastery. And so, once again, I was back in the world. The New Haven train sped through all those industrial towns with occasional flashes of blue water and pale sand and grayish grass all along the line at the left. I read a story in The New Yorker about a boy who, instead of becoming a priest, got married, or at least fell in love or something and the emptiness and futility and nothingness of the world once more invaded me from every side. But now it could not disturb me or make me unhappy. It was sufficient to know that even if I might be in it, that did not compel me to have any part of it, or to belong to it, or even to be seriously begrimed with its sorry, unavoidable contact. Part 3 Back at St. Bonaventure's, they gave me a room on the north side of the building where you could see the sun shining on the green hillside, which was a golf course. And all day long, you could hear the trains in the Olean freight yards crying out and calling to one another and ringing their bells. The sound of journeys, sound of exile. I found that almost without realizing it, I had little by little reorganized the pattern of my life on a stricter plan getting up earlier in the morning, saying the little hours about dawn and before it when the days got shorter, as preparation for Mass and Communion, 
Now, too, I took three quarters of an hour in the morning of mental prayer. I was doing a lot of spiritual reading, Lives of the Saints, Joan of Arc, St. John Bosco, St. Benedict. I was going through St. John of the Cross's Ascent of Mount Carmel and the first parts of the Dark Night for the second time, in fact, but for the first time with understanding. The big present that was given to me that October in the Order of Grace was the discovery that the little flower really was a saint, not just a mute, pious little doll in the imaginations of a lot of sentimental old women. And not only was she a saint, but a great saint, one of the greatest, tremendous. I owe her all kinds of public apologies in reparation for having ignored her greatness for so long. But to do that would take a whole book, and here I only have a few lines to give away. It was a wonderful experience to discover a new saint, for God is greatly magnified and marvelous in each one of his saints, differently in each individual one. There are no two saints alike, but all of them are like God, like him in a different and special way. In fact, if Adam had never fallen, the whole human race would have been a series of magnificently different and splendid images of God. Each one of all the millions of men showing forth his glories and perfections in an astounding new way, and each one shining with his own particular sanctity, a sanctity destined for him for all eternity as the most complete and unimaginable supernatural perfection of his human personality. If since the fall this plan will never be realized in millions of souls, and millions will frustrate that glorious destiny of theirs and hide their personality in an eternal corruption of disfigurement, nevertheless, in reforming his image in souls distorted and half destroyed by evil and disorder, God makes the works of his wisdom and love all the more strikingly beautiful by reason of the contrast with the surroundings in which he does not disdain to operate. It was never, could never be, any surprise to me that saints should be found in the misery and sorrow and suffering of Harlem, in the leper colonies like Father Damien's Molokai, and the slums of John Bosco's Turin, or the roads of Umbria in the time of St. Francis, or in the hidden Cistercian abbeys of the 12th century, or in the Grand Chartreuse, or the Thebaud, Jerome's cave with the lion keeping guard over his library, or Simon's pillar. All this was obvious. These things were strong and mighty reactions in ages and situations that called for spectacular heroism. But what astonished me altogether was the appearance of a saint in the midst of all the stuffy, overplush, overdecorated, comfortable ugliness and mediocrity of the bourgeoisie. Therese of the child Jesus was a Carmelite. That is true. But what she took into the convent with her was a nature that had been formed and adapted to the background and mentality of the French middle class of the late 19th century of which nothing could be imagined to be more complacent and apparently immovable. The only thing that seemed to me more or less impossible was for Grace to penetrate the thick, resilient hide of the bourgeois smugness and really take hold of the immortal soul beneath that surface in order to make something out of it. At best, I thought, such people might turn out to be harmless prigs, but great sanctity? Never. As a matter of fact, such a thought was a sin both against God and my neighbor. 
It was a blasphemous underestimation of the power of grace, and it was an extremely uncharitable judgment of a whole class of people on sweeping, general, and rather misty grounds, applying a big theoretical idea to every individual that happens to fall within a certain category. I first got interested in St. Therese of Lisot by reading Guéon's sensible book about her, A Fortunate Beginning. If I had chanced on some of the other little flower literature that's floating around, the faint spark of potential devotion in my soul would have been quenched at once. However, no sooner had I got a faint glimpse of the real character and the real spirituality of St. Therese than I was immediately and strongly attracted to her, an attraction that was the work of grace, since, as I say, it took me in one jump clean through a thousand psychological obstacles and repugnances. And here's what strikes me as the most phenomenal thing about her. She became a saint not by running away from the middle class, not by abjuring and despising and cursing the middle class or the environment in which she had grown up. On the contrary, she clung to it insofar as one could cling to such a thing and be a good Carmelite. She kept everything that was bourgeois about her and was still not incompatible with her vocation. Her nostalgic affection for the funny villa called Le Boussonette, her taste for utterly oversweet art and for little candy angels and pastel saints playing with lambs so soft and fuzzy that they literally give people like me the creeps. She wrote a lot of poems which, no matter how admirable their sentiments, were certainly based on the most mediocre of popular models. To her, it would have been incomprehensible that anyone should think these things were ugly or strange, and it never even occurred to her that she might be expected to give them up or hate them or curse them or bury them under a pile of anathemas. And she not only became a saint, but the greatest saint there has been in the church for 300 years, even greater in some respects than the two tremendous reformers of her order, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, the discovery of all this was certainly one of the biggest and most salutary humiliations I have ever had in my life. I do not say that it changed my opinions of the smugness of the 19th century bourgeoisie. God forbid. When something is revoltingly ugly, it is ugly, and that is that. I did not find myself calling the externals of that weird culture beautiful, but I did have to admit that as far as sanctity was concerned, all this external ugliness was, per se, completely indifferent. And what is more, like all the other physical evil in the world, it could very well serve, per accidents, as an occasion or even a secondary cause of great spiritual good. The discovery of a new saint is a tremendous experience, and all the more so because it is completely unlike the film fan's discovery of a new star. What can such a one do with his new idol? Stare at her picture until it makes him dizzy? That is all. But the saints are not mere inanimate objects of contemplation. They become our friends, and they share our friendship and reciprocate it and give us unmistakable tokens of their love for us by the graces that we receive through them. And so, now that I have this great new friend in heaven, it was inevitable that the friendship should begin to have its influence on my life. The first thing that St. Therese of Lisot could do for me was to take charge of my brother, whom I put into her care all the more readily because now, with characteristic suddenness, he had crossed the border into Canada 
and sent us word by mail that he was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Not that this was a very great surprise to anybody. As the time came closer for him to be drafted, it began to be clear that he didn't care where he went so long as it was not into the infantry. Finally, just when he was about to be called, he had gone to Canada and volunteered as an airman. Since Canada was already long since actually at war, and since her flyers went relatively quickly into action, where they were badly needed, in England, it was at once evident that John Paul's chances of surviving a long war were very small. I suppose he was the only one who ignored this. As far as I could gather, he went into the Air Force as if flying a bomber were nothing more dangerous than driving a car. So now he was in camp somewhere near Toronto. He wrote to me of some vague hope that, since he was a photographer, they might send him out as an observer to take pictures of bomb cities and to make maps and so on. But meanwhile, he was doing sentry duty on the ground along the length of some great wire fence. And I set the little flower as a sentry to look out for him. She did the job well. But the things that happened in my own life before two more months had passed also bore the mark of her interference. In October, I was writing long letters full of questions to the Baroness, who was still in Canada, and getting letters just as long in return, full of her own vivid and energetic wisdom. It was good for me to get those letters. They were full of strong and definite encouragement. Go on. You're on the right path. Keep on writing. Love God. Pray to Him more. You have arisen and started on the journey that seeks Him. You have begun to travel that great road that will lead you to sell all and buy the pearl of great price. To sell all. The thing had not bothered me so much in September, and I had left it aside to wait and see what would develop. It was beginning to develop now. For now in these days, I was quite alone in the chapel, under those plain beams, watching the quiet tabernacle, and things began to speak inside me. This time, it was a much deeper impulsion, the expression of a much profounder need. It was not a movement of love stretching out to grasp some external, tangible good and to possess it, not a movement of appetite, intellectual if you like, but still of appetite towards some good that could be seen and felt and enjoyed, a form of life, a religious existence, a habit, a rule. It was not a desire to see myself vested in this or that kind of robe or cloak or scapular and praying this way or that way, or studying here or preaching there, or living in this or that kind of monastery. It was something quite different. I no longer needed to get something. I needed to give something. But here I was, day after day, feeling more and more like the young man with great possessions who came to Christ asking for eternal life, saying he kept the commandments and asking, What is yet wanted of me? Had Christ said to me, Go, sell what thou hast, and give it to the poor, and come and follow me? As the day shortened and grew darker, and the clouds were getting iron gray with the threat of the first snows, it seemed to me that this was what he was asking of me. Not that I was a man of great possessions. Everybody on the staff at St. Bonaventure's was called a professor. That was in order that the title might compensate us all more or less for what we did not get in pay. The salary I got was quite sufficient for me to practice evangelical poverty. The thought that first came into my mind was this. 
I still had some money that my grandfather had left me in a bank in New York. Perhaps what should be done was to give that away to the poor. That was as far as I had advanced when I decided to make a novena, asking for grace to know what to do next. On the third day of the novena, Father Hubert, one of the friars, said, The Baroness is coming. We are going to drive up to Buffalo and meet her train from Canada and bring her down here. Do you want to come along? Early in the afternoon, we got in the car and started north, up one of those long parallel valleys that slant down toward the Allegheny. When the Baroness got off the train, it was the first time I had seen her with a hat on, but the thing that impressed me was the effect she had on these priests. We had been sitting around in the station bored, complaining of this and that situation in the world. Now they were wide awake and cheerful and listening very intently to everything she had to say. We were in a restaurant having something to eat, and the Baroness was talking about priests and about the spiritual life and gratitude and the ten lepers in the gospel, of whom only one returned to give thanks to Christ for having cured them. She had made what seemed to me to be certainly a good point, but I suddenly noticed that it had struck the two friars like a bombshell. Then I realized what was going on. She was preaching to them. Her visit to St. Bonaventure's was to be for them and the seminarians and the rest who heard her a kind of mission or retreat. I had not grasped before how much this was part of her work. Priests and religious had become indirectly almost as important a mission field for her as Harlem. It was a tremendous thing, the economy of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God finds a soul in which he can work, he uses that soul for any number of purposes, opens out before its eyes a hundred new directions, multiplying its works and its opportunities for the apostolate almost beyond belief, and certainly far beyond the ordinary strength of a human being. Here was this woman who had started out to conduct a more or less obscure work helping the poor in Harlem, now placed in such a position that the work which had barely been begun was drawing to her souls from every part of the country and giving her a sort of unofficial apostolate among the priesthood, the clergy, and the religious orders. What was it that she had to offer them that they did not already possess? One thing, she was full of the love of God and prayer and sacrifice and total uncompromising poverty had filled her soul with something which it seemed these two men had often looked for in vain in the dry and conventional and merely learned retreats that fell to their lot. And I could see that they were drawn to her by the tremendous spiritual vitality of the grace that was in her, a vitality which brought with it a genuine and lasting inspiration, because it put their souls into contact with God as a living reality. And that reality, that contact, is something which we all need, and one of the ways in which it had been decreed that we should arrive at it is by hearing one another talk about God. Fetus ex autitus. And it is no novelty for God to raise up saints who are not priests to preach to those who are priests. Witness the Baroness's namesake, Catherine of Siena. But she had something to say to me, too. My turn came when we were in the car driving south along the shining, wet highway. The Baroness was sitting in the front seat, talking to everybody, but presently she turned to me and said, Well, Tom, when are you coming to Harlem for good? 
The simplicity of the question surprised me. Nevertheless, sudden as it was, the idea struck me that this was my answer. This was probably what I had been praying to find out. However, it was sudden enough to catch me off guard, and I didn't quite know what to say. I began to talk about writing. I said that my coming to Harlem depended on how much writing I would be able to do when I got there. Both the priests immediately joined in and told me to stop making conditions and opening a lot of loopholes. You let her decide about all that, said Father Hubert. So it began to look as if I were going to Harlem, at least for a while. And the Baroness said, Tom, you are thinking of becoming a priest. People who ask all the questions you asked me in those letters usually want to become priests. Her words turned the knife in that old wound, but I said, Oh, no, I have no vocation to the priesthood. When the conversation shifted to something else, I more or less dropped out of it to think over what had been said, and it soon became clear that it was the most plausible thing for me to do. I had no special sense that this was my vocation, but on the other hand, I could no longer doubt that St. Bonaventure's had outlived its usefulness in my spiritual life. I did not belong there anymore. It was too tame, too safe, too sheltered. It demanded nothing of me. It had no particular cross. It left me to myself, belonging to myself, in full possession of my own will, in full command of all that God had given me that I might give it back to him. As long as I remained there, I still had given up nothing, or very little, no matter how poor I happened to be. At least I could go to Harlem and join these people in their tenement and live on what God gave us to eat from day to day and share my life with the sick and the starving and the dying and those who never had anything and never would have anything, the outcasts of the earth, a race despised. If that was where I belonged, God would let me know soon enough and definitely enough. When we got to St. Bonaventure's, I saw the head of the English department standing in the dim light under the arched door of the monastery, and I said to the baroness, Well, there's my boss. I have to go and tell him to hire somebody else for the next term if I'm leaving for Harlem. And the next day, we made it definite. In January, after the semester was finished, I would come down to live at Friendship House. The baroness said I would have plenty of time to write in the mornings. I went to Father Thomas, the president, in his room in the library, and told him I was going to leave. His face became a labyrinth of wrinkles. Harlem, he said slowly. Harlem. Father Thomas was a man of big silences. There was a long pause before he spoke again. Perhaps you are being a bit of an enthusiast. I told him that it seemed to be what I ought to do. There was another big silence, and then he said, Haven't you ever thought about being a priest? Father Thomas was a very wise man, and since he was the head of a seminary and had taught theology to generations of priests, one of the things he might be presumed to know something about was who might or might not have a vocation to the priesthood. But I thought, he doesn't know my case, and there was no desire in me to talk about it, to bring up a discussion and get all mixed up now that I had made up my mind to do something definite. So I just said, Oh, yes, Father, I've thought about it, but I don't believe I have that vocation. The words made me unhappy. 
but I forgot them immediately when Father Thomas said with a sigh, All right then, go to Harlem if you must. Part 4 After that, things began to move fast. On the day before Thanksgiving, I abandoned my freshman class in English composition to their own devices and started to hitchhike south New York. At first, I was in doubt whether to make for New York or Washington. My aunt and uncle were at the Capitol since his company was putting up a hotel there, and they would be glad to see me. They were rather lonely and isolated there. However, the first ride I got took me on the way to New York rather than Washington. It was a big standard oil truck heading for Wellsville. We drove out into the wild, bright country, the late November country full of light of Indian summer. The red barns glared in the harvested fields and the woods were bare, but all the world was full of color and the blue sky swam with fleets of white clouds. The truck devoured the road with high singing tires and I rode throned in the lofty rocking cab, listening to the driver telling me stories about all the people who lived in places we passed and what went on in the houses we saw. It was material for two dozen of those novels I had once desired to write, but as far as I was now concerned, it was all bad news. While I was standing on the road at the edge of Wellsville, well beyond a corner where there was a gas station near the Erie tracks, a big trailer full of steel rails went past me. It was a good thing it didn't stop and pick me up. Five or six miles further on was a long hill. It led down to a sharp turn in the middle of a village called, I forget what, Jasper or Juniper or something like that. By the time I got another ride, we came down the hill. My driver pointed to the bottom and said, Man, look at that wreck! There was a whole crowd standing around. They were pulling the two men out of the cab of the truck. I never saw anything so flat as that cab. The whole thing, steel rails and all, had piled up in an empty yard between two small houses. The houses both had glass door windows. If the truck had gone into one of those stores, the whole house would have come down on top of them. And yet the funny thing was, the two men were both alive. A mile further on, the man who had given me a lift turned off the road, and I started once again to walk. It was a big, wide-open place with a sweep of huge fields all down the valley, and quails flew up out of the brown grass, vanishing down the wind. I took the breviary out of my pocket and said the Te Deum on account of those two men who were not killed. Presently, I got to another village, maybe... That one was called Jasper or Juniper, too. The kids were just getting out of school at lunchtime. I sat on some concrete steps that led down to the road from one of those neat white houses and started to say Vespers while I had a chance. Presently, a big old-fashioned car, old and worn out but not very much polished, came along and stopped and picked me up. It was a polite old man and his wife. They had a son who was a freshman at Cornell, and they were going to bring him home for Thanksgiving. Outside of Addison, they slowed down to show me a beautiful old colonial house that they always admired when they passed that way. And it was indeed a beautiful old colonial house. So they dropped me at Horseheads, and I got something to eat. And I broke a tooth on some nickel candy and went walking off down the road, reciting in my head this rhyme. 
So I broke my tooth on a bar of Baby Ruth. It was not so much the tooth that I had broke as something a dentist had put there. And then a businessman in a shiny Oldsmobile gave me a ride as far as Owego. At Owego, I stood at the end of the Long Iron Bridge and looked at the houses across the river with all their shaky old balconies and wondered what it was like to live in such a place. Presently, a car with a geyser of steam spouting over the radiator pulled up and the door opened. It was a man who said he had been working on an all-night shift in some war industry in Dunkirk that was operating 24 hours a day. He said, This car is running on borrowed time. However, he was going all the way down to Peekskill for Thanksgiving. I think it was on the day after Thanksgiving, Friday, the feast of the presentation that I saw Mark. I had lunch with him at the Columbia Faculty Club. The main reason why I wanted to talk to him was that he had just read the book I had written that summer, the Journal of My Escape from the Nazis, and he had an idea that somebody he knew might publish it. That was what I thought was important about the talk that day. But Providence had arranged it, I think, for another reason. We were downstairs standing among a lot of iron racks and shelves and things for keeping hats and briefcases, putting on our coats, and he had been talking about the Trappists. And Mark asked me, What about your idea of being a priest? Did you ever take that up again? I answered with a sort of indefinite shrug. You know... I've talked about that to someone who knows what it's all about, and he said that the fact that you had let it all drop when you were told you had no vocation might really be a sign that you had none. This was the third time that shaft had been fired at me unexpectedly in these last days, and this time it really struck deep. For the reasoning that went with this statement forced my thoughts to take an entirely new line. If that were true, then it prescribed a new kind of attitude to the whole question of my vocation. I'd been content to tell everybody that I had no vocation, but all the while, of course, I had been making a whole series of adjustments and reservations. Now somebody was telling me, if you keep making all those reservations, maybe you will lose this gift which you know you have. Which I knew I had? How did I know such a thing? The spontaneous rebellion against the mere thought that I might definitely not be called to the monastic life that it might certainly be out of the question once and for all. The rebellion against such an idea was so strong in me that it told me all I needed to know. And what struck me most forcibly was that this challenge had come from Mark, who was not a Catholic and who would not be expected to possess such inside information about vocations. I said to him, I think God's providence arranged things so that you would tell me that today. Mark saw the point of that, and he was pleased by it. As I was taking leave of him on the corner of 116th Street by the law school, I said, If I ever entered any monastery, it would be to become a Trappist. It did not seem to me that this should have any effect on my decision to go to Harlem. If it turned out I did not belong there, then I would see about the monastery. Meanwhile, I had gone down to Friendship House and discovered that on Sunday they were all going to make their monthly day of retreat to the convent of the Holy Child on Riverside Drive. Bob Lax went up with me that Sunday morning, and together we climbed the steps to the convent door, and a sister let us in. We were about the first ones there and had to wait some time before the others came and Mass began. But I think Father Furphy, their spiritual director, 
who was teaching philosophy at the Catholic University and running something like Friendship House in the Negro Quarter of Washington, spoke to us first at the beginning of Mass. Everything he said that day made a strong impression on both me and Lax. However, when I came back from receiving communion, I noticed that Lax had disappeared. Later, when we went to breakfast, I found him there. After we had all gone to communion, he said he began to get the feeling that the place was going to fall down on top of him. So he went out to get some air. A sister who had noticed me passing the missile back and forth to him and showing him the place hurried out after him and found him inside sitting with his head between his knees and offered him a cigarette. That night, when we left the convent, neither of us could talk. We just walked down Riverside Drive in the dusk, saying nothing. I got on the train in Jersey City and started back for Orleans. Three days went by without any kind of event. It was the end of November. All the days were short and dark. Finally, on the Thursday of that week, in the evening, I found myself filled with a vivid conviction. The time has come for me to go and be a Trappist. Where had that thought come from? All I knew was that it was suddenly there, and it was suddenly powerful, irresistible, clear. I picked up a book on the Cistercian life that I had bought at Gethsemane and turned over the pages as if they had something more to tell me. They seemed to me to be all written in words of flame and fire. I went to supper and came back and looked at the book again. My mind was literally full of this conviction, and yet... In the way stood hesitation, that old business. But now there could be no delaying. I must finish with that once and for all and get an answer. I must talk to somebody who would settle it. It could be done in five minutes. And now was the time. Now. Whom should I ask? Father Philotheus was probably in his room downstairs. I went downstairs and out into the court. Yes, there was a light in Father Philotheus's room. All right, go in and see what he has to say. But instead of that, I bolted out into the darkness and made for the grove. It was Thursday night. The alumni hall was beginning to fill. They were going to have a movie, but I hardly noticed it. It did not occur to me that perhaps Father Philotheus might go to the movie with the rest. In the silence of the grove, my feet were loud on the gravel. I walked and prayed. It was very, very dark by the shrine of the little flower. Oh, for heaven's sake, help me, I said. I started back towards the buildings. All right, now I am really going to go in there and ask him. Here's the situation, Father. What do you think? Should I go and be a Trappist? There was still a light in Father Philotheus's room. I walked bravely into the hall, but when I got within six feet of his door, it was almost as if somebody had stopped me and held me where I was with physical hands. I, I couldn't walk a step further, even though I wanted to. I, I made a kind of push at the obstacle, which was perhaps a devil, and then turned around and ran out of the place once more. And again I headed for the grove. The alumni hall was nearly full. My feet were loud on the gravel again. I was in the silence of the grove among the wet trees. I don't think there was ever a moment in my life when my soul felt so urgent and so special in anguish. I had been praying all the time, so I cannot say that I began to pray when I arrived where the shrine was. 
but things became more definite. Please help me. What am I going to do? I can't go on like this. You can see that. Look at the state I'm in. What ought I to do? Show me a way. As if I needed more information or some kind of a sign. But I said this time to the little flower, You show me what to do. And added, If I get into the monastery, I will be your monk. Now show me what to do. It was getting to be precariously near the wrong way to pray, making indefinite promises that I did not quite understand and asking for some sort of a sign. Suddenly, as soon as I made that prayer, I became aware of the wood, the trees, the dark hills, the wet night wind, and then, clearer than any of these obvious realities in my imagination, I started to hear the great bell of Gethsemane ringing in the night. The bell in the big gray tower ringing and ringing as if it were just behind the first hill. The impression made me breathless, and I had to think twice to realize it was only in my imagination that I was hearing the bell of the Trappist Abbey ringing in the dark. Yet, as I afterwards calculated, it was just about that time that the bell is rung every night for the Salve Regina toward the end of Compline. The bell seemed to be telling me where I belonged, as if it were calling me home. This fancy put such determination into me, I immediately started back for the monastery, going the long way round past the shrine of Our Lady of Lourdes and the far end of the football field. And every step I took, my mind became more and more firmly made up that now I would have done with all these doubts and hesitations and questions and all the rest and get this thing settled and go to the Trappists where I belonged. When I came into the courtyard, I saw that the light in Father Philotheus's room was out. In fact, practically all the lights were out. Everybody had gone to the movies. My heart sank. Yet there was one hope. I went right on through the door and into the corridor and turned to the friar's common room. I had never even gone near that door before. I had never dared. But now I went up and knocked on the glass panel and opened the door and looked inside. There was nobody there except one friar, alone. Father Philotheus. I asked if I could speak with him, and we went to his room. That was the end of all my anxiety, all my hesitation. As soon as I proposed all my hesitations and questions to him, Father Philotheus said he could see no reason why I shouldn't want to enter a monastery and become a priest. It may seem irrational, but at that moment it was as if scales fell from my eyes. And looking back on all my worries and questions, I could clearly see how empty and futile they had been. Yes, it was obvious that I was called to the monastic life, and all my doubts about it had been mostly shadows. Where had they gained such a deceptive appearance of substance and reality? Accident and circumstances had all contributed to exaggerate and distort things in my mind. But now, everything was straight again and already I was full of peace and assurance, the consciousness that everything was right and that a straight road had opened out, clear and smooth, ahead of me. Father Philotheus had only one question. Are you sure you want to be a Trappist? He asked me. Father, I answered, I want to give God everything. I could see by the expression on his face that he was satisfied. I went upstairs like somebody who had been called back from the dead.
Never had I experienced the calm, untroubled peace and certainty that now filled my heart. There was only one more question. Would the Trappists agree with Father Philotheus and accept my application? Without any delay, I wrote to the abbot of Gethsemane, asking permission to come and make a retreat at Christmas time. I tried to frame my request in words that hinted that I was coming as a postulate, without giving them an opportunity to refuse me before I had at least put one foot inside the door. I sealed the envelope and took it downstairs and dropped it in the mailbox and walked outside once more into the darkness toward the grove. Things were moving fast now, but soon they began to move still faster. I had barely got a reply from Gethsemane telling me that I was welcome to come there at Christmas when another letter came in the mail. The envelope was familiar and frightening. It bore the stamp of the draft board. I ripped it open and stood face to face with the notice that I was to report at once for a fresh medical examination. It was not hard to see what it would mean. They had tightened up their requirements, and I would probably no longer be exempt from military service. For a moment it seemed to me that Providence had deliberately become cruel. Was this going to be a repetition of the affair of the year before, when I had had my vocation snatched out of my hands when I was practically on the doorstep of the novitiate? Was that going to start all over again? Kneeling in the chapel with the crumpled paper in my pocket, it took a certain amount of choking before I could get out the words, I will be done. But I was determined that my vocation would not fall to ruins about me the moment after I had just recovered it. I wrote to the draft board at once and told them that I was entering a monastery and asked for time to find out when and under what conditions I would be admitted. Then I sat down to wait. It was the first week of December, 1941. Father Philotheus, hearing about the sudden call from the army, smiled and said, I think it is a very good sign, I mean, as far as your vocation is concerned. The week ended with no news from the draft board. Sunday, December the 7th, was the second Sunday in Advent. During the high mass, the seminarians were singing the Rorate Celli, and I came out into the unusually warm sun with the beautiful Gregorian plaint in my ears. I went over to the kitchen and got one of the sisters to make me some cheese sandwiches and put them in a shoebox and started out for Two Mile Valley. I climbed up the hillside on the eastern slope of the valley and reached the rim of the thick woods and sat down in a windless sunny place where there were a lot of brown, dried ferns. Down the hill by the road was a little country school. Further out, at the mouth of the little valley, near the Allegheny, were a couple of small farms. The air was warm and quiet. You could hear nothing but the pounding and coughing of the distant oil pump back in the woods. Who would think there was a war anywhere in the world? It was so peaceful here and undisturbed. I watched some rabbits come out and begin to play among the ferns. This was probably the last time I would see this place. Where would I be in a week from that day? It was in the hands of God. There was nothing I could do but leave myself to his mercy. But surely by this time I should have been able to realize he is much more anxious to take care of us and capable of doing so than we could be ourselves. It is only when we refuse his help, resist his will, that we have conflict, trouble, disorder, unhappiness, and ruin. I started back in the afternoon toward the college. It was two or two and a half miles to the railway trestle over the river, then a half mile home. 
I walked slowly along the tracks toward the red brick buildings of the college. The sky was getting cloudy, and it was not long before sunset. When I got to the campus and was walking down the cement path toward the dormitory, I met two of the other lay professors. They were talking animatedly about something or other. As I approached, they cried. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear the radio? America was finally in the war. The next morning, the feast of the Immaculate Conception, all the sisters who worked in the kitchen and the laundry were at Mass in the college chapel. This was one of the rare occasions when they came out in public. It was their patronal feast. The front pews were full of blue and white habits, and after the gospel, Father Conrad, a big burly friar with a ruddy face, a professor of philosophy as stout as Thomas Aquinas, preached a sad little sermon, half hiding behind a corner of a buttress that held up the beam over the sanctuary. It was about Pearl Harbor. When I left the chapel and went to the post office, I found a letter from the draft board. They said the medical examination would be put off for one month. I went to Father Thomas and explained my situation and asked permission to leave at once and asked, too, for a letter of recommendation. There was a meeting of the English department to share out my classes among my astonished confreres for the remainder of the term. I packed up most of my clothes and put them in a big box for Friendship House and the Negroes of Harlem. I left most of my books on my shelf for Father Arrhenius and his library and gave some to a friend in the seminary who had been reading Duns Scotus with me under Father Philotheus. The rest I put in a box to take with me to Gethsemane. Apart from that, all my possessions fitted into one suitcase, and that was too much, except that the Trappists might not receive me into their monastery. I took the manuscripts of three finished novels and one half-finished novel and ripped them up and threw them in the incinerator. I gave away some notes to people who might be able to use them, and I packed up all my poems I had written and the carbon copy of the Journal of My Escape from the Nazis, had another journal I had kept, and some material for an anthology of religious verse, and sent it all to Mark Van Doren. Everything else I had written I put in a binder and sent to Lax and Rice, who were living on 114th Street, New York. I closed my checking account at the Olean Bank, collected a check with a bonus for my services in the English department from the bursar, who couldn't figure out why a man should want to collect his wages in the middle of the month. I wrote three letters to Lax, the Baroness, and my relatives, and some postcards. By the afternoon of the following day, Tuesday, with an amazing and joyous sense of lightness, I was ready to go. My train was in the evening. It was already dark when the taxi called for me at the college. Where are you going, Prof? said somebody as I passed out of the building with my suitcase. The cab door slammed on my big general goodbye, and we drove away. I did not turn to see the collection of heads that watched the parting cab from the shelter of the arched door. When we got to town, there was still time for me to go to the Church of Our Lady of Angels, where I used to go to confession and where I often made the Stations of the Cross when I was in Olean. The place was empty. There were one or two little candles burning out in front of the statue of St. Joseph, and the red sanctuary light flickered in the quiet shadows. 
I knelt there for ten or twelve minutes in the silence without even attempting to grasp or comprehend the immense deep sense of peace and gratitude that filled my heart and went out from there to Christ in his tabernacle. Jim Hayes, who had taken over the main burden of my courses for me, was at the station to present me with a note saying the English department was having five masses said for me. Then the buffalo train came in through the freezing, sleety rain, and I got on, and my last tie with the world I had known snapped and broke. It was nothing less than a civil, moral death. The journey, this transition from the world to a new life, was like flying through some strange new element, as if I were in the stratosphere. And yet I was on the familiar earth, and the cold winter rain streaked the windows of the train as we traveled through the dark hills. After Buffalo, we began to pass factory after factory, lit up with a blue glare in the rain, working all night on armaments. But it was like looking at something in an aquarium. The last city I remember was Erie. After that, I was asleep. We went through Cleveland, and I knew nothing of it. I had been getting up and saying the rosary in the middle of the night as a sort of night office for several months past. I asked God to wake me up at Galleon, Ohio, so that I could do this, and so in the middle of the night I woke up and we were pulling out of Galleon. I began to say the rosary where our tracks crossed the Erie Line, which was the way I had come there the first time on my way to Gethsemane in the spring. Then I went back to sleep, rocked by the joyous music of the wheels. At Cincinnati, where we arrived about dawn, I asked the traveler's aid girl the name of some Catholic churches and got in a taxi to go to St. Francis Xavier's, where I arrived just as Mass was beginning at the high altar. So I heard Mass and received communion and went back to the station and had breakfast and got on the train for Louisville. And now the sun was up. It was shining on bare, rocky valleys, poor farmland, thin, spare fields with brush and a few trees and willows growing along the creeks and the gray cabins. From time to time, along the line outside of one of the cabins, a man was splitting a log with an axe, and I thought, that is what I will be doing, if God wills it, pretty soon. It was a strange thing. Mile after mile, my desire to be in the monastery increased beyond belief. I was altogether absorbed in that one area, and yet paradoxically, mile after mile, my indifference increased and my interior peace. What if they did not receive me? Then I would go to the army. But surely that would be a disaster. Not at all. If, after all this, I was rejected by the monastery and had to be drafted, it would be quite clear that it was God's will. I had done everything that was in my power. The rest was in his hands. And for all the tremendous and increasing intensity of my desire to be in the cloister, the thought that I might find myself instead in an army camp no longer troubled me in the least. I was free. I had recovered my liberty. I belonged to God, not to myself. And to belong to Him is to be free, free of all anxieties and worries and sorrows that belong to this earth and the love of the things that are in it. What was the difference between one place and another, one habit and another? If your life belonged to God, and if you placed yourself completely in his hands. The only thing that mattered was the fact of the sacrifice, the essential dedication of oneself, one's will. The rest was only accidental. 
This did not prevent me from praying harder and harder to Christ and to the Immaculate Virgin and to my whole private litany, St. Bernard, St. Gregory, St. Joseph, St. John of the Cross, St. Benedict, St. Francis of Assisi, the Little Flower, and all the rest to get me by hook or by crook into that monastery. And yet I knew that if God wanted me to go to the army, that would be the better and happier thing, because there is happiness only where there is coordination with the truth, the reality, the act that underlies and directs all things to their essential and accidental professions, and that is the will of God. There is only one happiness, to please Him, only one sorrow, to be displeasing to Him, to refuse Him something, to turn away from Him, even in the slightest thing, even in thought, in a half-willed movement of appetite. In these things and these alone is sorrow, insofar as they imply separation, or the beginning, the possibility of separation from Him who is our life and all our joy. And since God is a spirit and infinitely above all matter and all creation, the only complete union possible between ourselves and Him is in the order of intention, a union of wills and intellects in love and charity. I stepped on the platform of Louisville Station in the glory of that freedom and walked out into the streets with a sense of triumph, remembering the time I had come that way before, the previous Easter. I was so happy and exultant, I didn't look where I was going and walked into the Jim Crow waiting room whose shadows, full of negroes, became somewhat tense with resentment. I hastened out again apologetically. The Bardstown bus was half full and I found a somewhat dilapidated seat, and we rode out into the wintry country, the last lap of my journey into the desert. When I finally got off in Bardstown, I was standing across the road from a gas station. The street appeared to be empty, as if the town were asleep. But presently I saw a man in the gas station. I went over and asked where I could get someone to drive me to Gethsemane. So he put on his hat and started his car, and we left town on a straight road through level country, full of empty fields. It was not the kind of landscape that belonged to Gethsemane, and I could not get my bearings until some low, jagged, wooded hills appeared ahead of us to the left of the road, and we made a turn that took us into rolling wooded land. And then I saw that high, familiar spire. I rang the bell at the gate. It let fall a dull, unresonant note inside the empty court. My man got in his car and went away. Nobody came. I could hear somebody moving around inside the gatehouse. I did not ring again. Presently, the window opened, and Brother Matthew looked out between the bars with his clear eyes and graying beard. Hello, brother, I said. He recognized me and glanced at the suitcase and said, This time you've come to stay? Yes, brother, if you'll pray for me, I said. Brother nodded and raised his hand to close the window. That's what I've been doing, he said, praying for you.